the request of James and John. Then John, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, he said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The blind man. Uh, Bartimaeus receives his sight. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus! Son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Amen. I picked these texts 
to talk about a new imagination for Jesus and our work. A new imagination for Jesus and our work. And what we find when we think about our work is that work is always changing. The nature of work is always changing. The way we do work is always changing. Recently, a technology website reported that Google expects around 60% of their employees to meet with their teams in the office at least a few days a week. It expects another 20% to work from different office locations and 20% are expected to work from home. In the last year, we've gone through a dramatic change in how we work. And in some ways, I think we're always looking towards this question of how should we work, thinking about progress and thinking about what is the nature of work in an ever-changing world. I listened to an interview this week with a Times columnist, Ezra Klein, who was interviewing an anthropologist, and they were talking about a, an economist named John Maynard Keynes. Keynes lost his fortune in the 1930s stock market crash. And as the anthropologist puts it, to disabuse himself of the reality of his fortunes collapsing, he imagined and made a prediction that he called the economic possibilities for our grandchildren. And what he imagined is capital growth and all of these things that we have actually far exceeded. He said in a hundred years, we will get to this certain point. And already in 2021, 10 years before his predictions, we've blown past all of those growth metrics. And his prediction was that we would be people that would have to work hardly at all. Minimal, minimal work weeks. And this anthropologist goes on to show how hunter-gatherers in ancient cultures, they're finding more and more, probably worked about a 15-hour work week for resource collection. Now, they may have spent other times gathering and creating clothing and preparing food, but the actual hunting-gathering time was 15 hours a week. And that is where this conversation began to head into this question of what is work? Like, if way in ancient times we only had to toil and labor for 15 hours, if that really is true, and we're working like dogs now, and people are working sometimes 50, 60 hour work weeks, how should we work? What, what is the ideal for work? And it seems like the goal in this conversation and the things everyone is after is how do we do away with toil and labor? How do we do away with the work that is painful and agonizing? And perhaps I have some good news or maybe bad news for some of you, depending on where you fall on this work scale, which is that I believe after reading the Bible that in heaven we will still work. I believe that in heaven, we will still work. Many of us were raised in an image of heaven where we're up on clouds playing harps, you know, or we're traveling to other solar systems, or we're just kind of cosmic playboys. We're just kind of doing whatever we want, you know? And this is not the case biblically when you look at the design and the very nature of humanity. If you open your Bibles or if you want to skip back to G Genesis 2, verse 15, we get a glimpse at what God meant when he put us on this earth, what our purpose was. It says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
So the beginning, the purpose of mankind, when we think of a new imagination for our work, I think a new imagination for our work is not the progressive disappearance of work. That we will someday live in a culture where we are waited on hand and foot and there is nothing that we need to do for the world. That we just exist and relax and enjoy every moment as it's worked for us, as things are done for us. But in fact, God's design is to keep and tend the garden. That his design is a stewardship of the planet. And we know that at some point we will come not from just the new heavens, but we will come to a new earth. And so this stewardship is built into the nature and the DNA and the the spiritual makeup. We are people that are meant to steward and they do that. Adam and Eve do that by what? By knowing, by understanding, by having dominion over, by making the garden beautiful. And by enjoying it, enjoying it in and of itself is a way that they spend their time in it. But of course, we know that 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 world that was created in Genesis 2 quickly spun out of control. And if we look one chapter forward at Genesis 3, verse 13, we can see what happens. The Lord God said to the woman shortly after she had eaten of the apple that he commanded her from the tree that she should not eat of. He says, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. To the woman, the Lord God said, I'm going to break these into numbers for you. One, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. So the nature and the design of being fruitful and multiplying for Adam and Eve was distorted. Two, your desire shall be contrary to that of your husband, but he shall rule over you. So the nature of the one flush of the companionship was perverted. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Here's the third point. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. And here's the fourth point. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the death energies... Of a, separ- of a decided separation from God pervaded all of existence. Adam and Eve chose to die. It was a suicidal bite in which they said we would rather be separated from God and we, we, they soon found that the very nature of their existence was separated and cleaved in part in every way imaginable. In the most important ways that God had ordained it to be together, it was now beginning to fall apart. And now we exist in a wild chasm of that sin. And when we think of the very word work, We think just as Klein and this anthropologist thought of it as something that is not good, something we should get rid of, something that impedes our life, something that is a problem. We hate work often. And that is because we are working amidst thorns rather than working out of the abundance of the garden. So when we come back to this this interview, they're talking about how how is it that we are when we could supposedly subsist and they're challenging this idea on 15 hours a week in ancient times. 
And then how is it that when Keynes predicted that we would have so much growth, and we do truly have more than he could ever imagine, how is it that we are working so hard? And of course, they talk about certain things that created the growth that we have. One is the creation of scarcity or the creation of desire, largely done through advertising, which both grew the capital, but also grew our hunger. We've talked about this before. The creation of desire that is created through advertising is very, very hard to fight, and it's pervasive. It is all around us. You are programmed by it more than you could possibly imagine. But the fundamental part of this is that at the garden, we began to desire beyond what was given. At the garden, Adam and Eve, our spiritual fathers and mothers, the ancestral line that we can trace back to their sin that we have inherited, is that we have a desire now beyond the given. See, I, I think in the garden, they were still hungry. I think in the garden they still hungered because they were to eat of every tree of the garden. How can you eat unless you know you're hungry? It wouldn't be fun to eat if you're full all the time. I think they had natural human bodily functions that we could imagine, which is that they still had hunger. The difference was that the food was in front of them and all around them. Work was not toil and labor because it was just there in abundance. And of course, you still have to gather it. You still have to collect it. You can still cook with it and enjoy it. And we could call all of those things work, but they're not really work if everything's just totally available. What makes it work for us is that we are seeking things for desire. We are desiring things that are not readily given for us, that there are thorns and thistles, as Genesis 3 talks about. And so we get modern lifestyle gurus who tell us what it is that we should do with work. One of the more notable ones of recent times is a man named Tim Ferriss. He wrote a book called The 4-Hour Workweek, How to Have the Lifestyle of the New Rich. Tim Ferriss says this, he says, for most people, life would be boring without meaningful work. Life would be boring without meaningful work, which is interesting because he prescribes in his book an avenue to become the new rich in which you do less and less labor and toil to create the lifestyle you want to live. But then the question becomes, what do you do with the rest of your time? And what Ferris, I think, is saying here is that life would be boring if you weren't spending that time meaningfully. And even though he's advocating for a four-hour work week, he's actually saying, no, a four hours of more meaningless, labor laborious, toilsome work is what he's trying to get rid of. But Ferris completely understands that we need purpose and fulfillment, and we will find these via various pursuits. I think if you piggyback, I mean, I think we get that in our culture. Gen Z, our gen my generation, millennial generation is just very big on like, I want to work on something that has meaning. I want to do something that matters. Marc Chagall, famous French-Russian artist, wrote, work isn't to make money. You work to justify life. You work to justify life. I think Chagall gets it even more on the head than Ferris. Why do we work? What makes me worth anything? 
My work is a part of how I determine and report my worth to each other. Now, I either do that through my job, or if I don't feel my job is worthy, but it's functional in some way, then I don't talk about my job at a cocktail party. I trade it in for worthy items, pursuits, social circles, stories. I mean, there are all sorts of currency that we transform our work into so that it can create merit and worthiness so that we can receive glory from other people. I think that if we start to realize that the reason we work oftentimes is for our own justification, we will begin to see the new imagination for, Jesus, for work that Jesus has for us. Okay, so this text that I picked out, we may not see this text as a pursuit about work at first glance. But if you look closer, look at how the disciples are after a sense of justification of their life and a sense of worthiness. First of all, they sort of put Jesus, they want to put Jesus in their debt. Haven't you had a kid do this before? Hey, hey, dad, I'm going to ask you a question, but you have to say yes, right? Before I ask it, you have to say yes to this question. Are you ready? This is what they do. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. They're almost trying to put Jesus in their debt, right? Jesus, something that's happened in the past, we're going to trade in right now. We're going to trade in our followership for you right now. We're going to trade in the time we've given you, following your every word and obeying you. But we want you to give us whatever we would ask of you. And he says to them, what do you want me to do for you? Whew, if we could answer that question when Jesus asks it to us, what do, what do I actually want you to do for me, Jesus? And they say to him, this is what we, we know what we want. This is what we want. We've talked about it. Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Just, just the position and the authority you have and the journey you're on and the revolution that we're going to have and the rulership you're going to have over Jerusalem. And we're like your closest friends. We're in the inner circle. Just ensure us that we have a spot at the table of that dominion that you are creating over this earth. Now, I, I'm going to imagine here that these are disciples who actually understand that work brings something, that work brings meaning. These are fishermen, James and John. They know how to work hard. They're small business entrepreneurs. They know that the work that they've been doing must be for something. And since they gave up that work for this work for Jesus, there must be some compatible exchange. I mean, well, we gave up the fishing lifestyle. What, what are you going to give us that's better you offer the good life. What are you going to give us better? And I think that like so many of us, they saw and they desired. They saw and they desired. We do that so often when we pursue things to justify our lives. And what had happened is that they had just had a thought-provoking experience. And they said, oh, I know. I know what I want. I want that. If we go one chapter before this to Mark 9. The last mention of James and John together is at the transfiguration, Mark 9, verses 2 through 6. And it says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. 
There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anything in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then it says in parentheses, I think it's pretty comical. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Just, he just wanted to do, just, just let me do something so I can be here. I can't make sense of any of this. What can I do? How can I be useful? Perhaps James and John that locked into their mind this idea of the glory of being on the left and the right of Jesus. The glory that would become of Elijah and Moses and they asked him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one of your left in your glory. So I think for most of us, our work is first a pursuit of survival. There is a level to all of our work that is good and necessary simply in this life because we must do it to survive. God's given us our environment. He's given us our situation. He knows he's given us two able hands, many of us, and able feet and a good mind. And he says, survive, survive. And then secondarily and more importantly, our work is a pursuit of significance. James and John had survival. They were okay. You know, they're provided for. Whether that's the crowds, whether that's the people that constantly host them, we never get a sense that the disciples are not provided for in some way. Maybe they're still working on and off. They have reached survival and now they're searching for significance, which by the way is the place that huge swath of America is in, especially if you look globally. Survival is not necessarily the issue anywhere for most people. The issue that really drives them nuts is significance. Significance. Because the significance search has been torn apart. Adam and Eve had no search for significance necessary. None of the work Adam and Eve had to do was a search to feel worthy or enough. But when human desire cleaved us apart from the will of God, we were stuck with this, what we call an existential void. People use that term all the time. Existence itself feels like it has a flat tire. Existence itself has a gnawing hunger in between. And in everything we do, there is a deep sense of internal loneliness. No matter how close we are to someone else, there is still a loneliness of simply existing as a human being in this world. And we search for that justification, however we may do it. But... Now we can ask the question, what is God's purpose for our work? If we are in a search for justification, but Adam and Eve didn't have it, and we are redeemed by a Savior, and his name is Jesus, then what is Jesus' purpose for our work? Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The justification search, the search for significance in our work 
is not necessary in the way that we imagine it Monday through Friday. Our work does not make us who we are and praise God for that. Praise God for that. And yet, we are designed to be working bodies. So how do we deal with that? All of us in this room are significant in this present moment, totally, because of our faith in Jesus. And yet we will walk out Monday and we will begin our various work weeks, most of us, in very different ways, whether it's parenting small kids, whether it is getting on airplanes, whether it is bagging groceries, whatever it is that we will do to do our work, we will get on it and quickly the world and its thought process and its loudspeakers will say, justify yourself, succeed, Work less, play more. There will always be this broadcast of the need for justification because the world is searching for it, but we have it in Jesus. And so what is the ordained protocol? Like what is the, the nature of our work? Martin Luther calls this the doctrine of vocation, which is what is God's purpose for our lives in our various spheres of life? Chagall is helpful here. He helps us see that meaning is what we're after. But God himself has a clearer and truer vision for what our true identity is. And our identity is in Jesus. And so what does he say in Genesis? I, I intentionally skipped forward and didn't read this yet. In Genesis 1, 26, we get the longer version of what Adam and Eve were to do in the garden. I'm going to read from the Amplified here because the Amplified has really nice brackets that translate a few different versions of the word for you. I think it will help us. We've heard this a lot. So let's think of it freshly. God said, let us, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, make man in our image according to our likeness. In brackets here, not physical, but a spiritual personality, a moral likeness. And let them have complete authority over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, and over the entire earth, and over everything that creeps and crawls on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image and likeness of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them granting them certain authority and said to them, be fruitful and multiply the earth and subjugate it, putting it under your power and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air and every living thing that moves upon the earth. So God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the entire earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to all the animals in the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that moves on the ground, to everything in which there is a breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so because he commanded it. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and he validated it completely. Our very nature as people that have dominion over this earth is very good and validated completely when we are in union with God. And that in and of itself gives us a package of what vocation, of what calling by God, vocation in the Latin is for the word calling, and it's calling for a participation in society for the sake of God and others as Jean Edward Veith describes it. 
a calling and a purpose in society for the sake of God and others. That is God's design for your work life. What we would call your nine to five is not a nine to five. It's your total existence. And it is to be united in union with God through Jesus and then serving others, getting out there, doing it. So last week we talked about habits of renewal and we talked about an anchor habit of grace. If we spring forward with that anchor habit of grace and say, first I seat myself in the grace and mercy of God. Then I can begin to understand that my calling is work, not what work can I do for God to make me good enough and worthy of him, but what work can God do through me? What work can God do through me? In the black church, they call this assignment. It's a big word. They, they talk about what is your assignment? And the idea is that we are given something and we can do it right here and now. All human action is love for God and others. And that means our purpose is to be inherently social. Our creativity is meant to be inherently beneficial. And we are meant to be life bringers into a death-bent existence. Counterculture Christian work is to navigate, bend, challenge, create, serve, and govern in such a way that we bring Christ's life-giving energy into death places. Life-giving energy is what we are supposed to do with our work. But so much of our work week is spent on how do I how do I get there? How do I get to the next step for me, for my family by extension? And many of us make it morally good to be selfish because we're serving our family. How does my family get there? See, I'm a good dad, I'm a good mom. But is it really about loving and serving with dominion, good governance over this planet? Or are we bending and twisting and actually bringing death into the vocation? Some of us will just say, hey, I'm justified by Jesus. And that just means no need to work. Jesus has got me. Jesus has got everything. Totally lose my motivation when I become a Christian. Like, what's the point? Right? New heaven, new earth. It's going to happen. Why do I need to work? But I think when we see this, this doctrine of vocation that we see in Genesis, there is no room for the unmotivated in that space. There is no room for complete lack of motivation. It's not part of our inherent design with union with Jesus. Paul talks about this in 2 Thessalonians. He says in chapter 3, verse 10, he says, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, Paul's not trying to be a jerk. He's just saying that's not the way of Jesus. Something is messed up inside of you. Something's actually selfishly bent. Death energy is present that needs to be cleansed out by work. God wants to work through you. And so what did they do? They brought in the orphans. They brought in the widows. We were talking the other day about how that might have worked. I'm sure when they brought in the widows, the widows helped manage the kids running around, all the orphans that they were taking. Like there was work for everybody to do. They get orphans on different tasks. They start apprenticing. Everybody is motivated to serve the larger society. 
in this new imagination from work. But the problem is that sin has also entered our vocation, like I talked about earlier, our idea, our moralizing of selfishness in various ways. Veith says people sin in their vocations and they sin against their vocations. They sin in them and they sin against them. And so even this word of dominion has become a bad word, right? If we hear the word dominion, we instantly think, who are you trying to control? What are you trying to have power over? Because our world of sinful vocation is one in which we just see a lot of people misusing the powers that they gain from work. We see governing authorities that extract instead of imbue. We see systems that steal life instead of give it, instead of channeling it, instead of cultivating it. From abortion to the prison system, from global warming and resource extraction, we see suffering and the misuse of vocations, and we see a largely a condemnation energy instead of a healing energy in that process. It's pretty cutting. Let's see what Jesus has to say about the doctrine of vocation to his disciples that in their moral high ground had said, well, you know, we're following you. We just, we just want to have the glory of being with you. That would, that would be enough for us, Jesus. That's where we want to get. I think that's what this is about is achievement and justifying ourselves. And he says in verse 38, Mark 10, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to him, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus is saying, God, the Father is in control of your position. And your position, since it doesn't justify your existence, isn't part of the equation. It doesn't matter. If you're high on the totem pole or low on the totem pole, it doesn't matter in Jesus's world because everybody is called to do the same act of vocation and service for others. That is a hard pill to swallow in our society. It's a hard pill to swallow. And we see it. We see even the sin of justification by work and this, this doctrine of vocation. We see it when the 10 respond. And it says, when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Well, that, that makes sense. They knew what was going on, right? These three guys are off with this whole transfiguration thing. They're probably talking about how amazing it is. Now they're asking for like kudos and like a special spot out of the 12. They want to they have a leg up on everyone else. And so they get embittered too. They get indignant. C.S. Lewis talks about this built-in destructive quality to our vocations, which I'm particularly guilty of, and he calls it the inner ring. He says, beware of the inner ring. He says, the inner ring is very clear when you come to think of it. If, say, you want to join a musical society because you really like music, then there's a possibility of satisfaction. You may find yourself playing in a good quartet and you may enjoy it. But if all you want is to be in the know, your pleasure will be short-lived. 
The circle cannot have from within the charm it had from the outside by the very act of admitting you, it has lost its magic. Isn't Woody Allen that said, I don't want to be part of any group that wants me to be a part of it. Once the first novelty is worn off, the members of this circle will be no more interesting than your old friends. Why should they be? You are not looking for virtue or kindness or loyalty or humor or learning or wit or any of the things that can really be enjoyed. You merely wanted to be in. And that is the pleasure that cannot last. As soon as your new associates have been staled to you by custom, you will be looking for another ring. The rainbow's end will still be ahead of you. The old ring will now be the only the drab background for your endeavor to enter the new one. I don't know how many of you guys have watched Hamilton, but the central, the central trope of Hamilton is that Aaron Burr's character has got to be in the room where it happened. He won't be happy until he's in there. He's fueled by envy and jealousy and a fervent desire to be in the room. Because there's something there that will justify my life. If I can finally work and get myself and kill myself at the altar of being worthy like they are, like they are, like that is then we'll finally get there in the good life. And Lewis says, you are trying to peel an onion. If you succeed, there will be nothing left until you conquer the fear of being an outsider. An outsider, you will remain. Just, it just strikes me because whether or not we are fueled by doing really hard work to justify ourselves, many of us can relate to meaning as social association. We mean something if we're liked by someone. Mm -hmm then we're finally worth it. And so what does it mean? We know what God's purpose is for our work. What does it mean now to pursue God's purpose for our work? Jesus talks about the, the, the problems. This is his version of the inner ring. He says to the, the disciples, he called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus redefined the inner ring of his society, the three around him, as being those who would be the most outsiders of all. Do you see how Jesus redefines the inner ring? And he says, until you're comfortable being an outsider, you will never be able to carry out the vocation I have given you. That arrival is truly a mirage in the way that culture has described it. So then we see how Jesus carries out the cure how he takes us to the place where he shows us what a calling looks like. Now, imagine, I don't know if I've never read this story in a way of thinking about a calling to a vocation of work, but listen to it and look at the ways that it mirrors the story before it. They came to Jericho, and when he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus has the anchor habit. And many rebuked him, 
telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man. They called him saying to him, take heart, get up. He's calling you and throwing off his cloak. He sprang out and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want from me? Notice that? What did the disciples say when Jesus said, what do you want from me? They wanted prestige. They wanted to be on the inner ring. And he said, Rabbi, just let me see. Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And what happened? What happened? Immediately he could see. He recovers his sight and he follows Jesus on the way. There is just so much packed into that about what a true calling looks like and how we can begin to discern our calling in the way of Jesus. There is, there is so much literature written for people in the 20 to 35 range about discerning your calling in the Christian world. What am I supposed to do in my life? And look at what Jesus says. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. Go whatever you want, more or less, right? Obviously not everything, but he's saying like, go your way. You pick, you pick. If you have a grace anchor habit and you have a heart changed and undone and justified by Jesus' mercy, the world is your playground because you will be doing everything out of the true nature of vocation. So I got, some, I got some notes and gathered some things from various people who have done a lot more work on this for me. One of them is Tim Keller, can't go wrong. One is Ivan Mesa, who writes for Gospel Coalition. And I've sort of parsed out some of their footnotes or their, their helpful tips for us to think about our vocation. The first thing that we need to know in our vocation is that we have one right now. You've got it. You're capable of doing it. Right now, right at this moment, God has called you into a vocation and it is at your fingertips. You can do it. Because we are to be service minded people. We are already as in as we can be because everybody in this room has proclaimed to accept Jesus or has the ability to accept him right in this very moment. So we can reclaim what we are doing right now and we can redefine it in terms of a calling, which is seeing what God is doing through our life instead of seeing what we're doing for God or what we're doing for others alone. It is to see what God is doing through my life. So the, the, the script that has been flipped from that podcast I was listening to, the interview about work and what, why we work, and all of these great minds thinking about work as they were all thinking about working for acceptance. But in God's design, we work from acceptance. And that is a really hard thing to actually live out. Our calling is teaching us and is recalibrating us to live out of that. Just because something is a job doesn't mean it is a calling. Callings exist apart from jobs. That's another helpful tip for us. Some of us think, well, my job defines who I am. Even when you say, hey, what do you do, right, is the first question at a get-together. And you tend to lock yourself into a conversation path around your job. 
And some of us, because we don't think what we do is a real job, we don't even know what to say in that situation. What do you do? Oh, you know, sometimes like I'm a, I'm a mom, you know, or I'm a stay at home dad. You know, like it's like, are you you're starting the conversation already ashamed at the vocation God has put in you, but it doesn't justify you. What you do is worthy. You may be sitting all over the place in that vocation, but the core bones of it, the calling that God has for you is actually worthy. And embracing the worthiness is part of getting and stepping out of the sin that you're in in the vocation. None of us have just one calling either. So when you lose your job, you don't lose your vocation. Super important. When you lose your job, you don't cease to become the person you were. You are not less than. Every calling is unique and callings change all the time. That's another wild one. Well, my identity is this. I'm good at this. Everyone tells me I like to do it. Everybody sees me do this. Guess what? People just tell you you're good at whatever you told them you were good at a lot of the times. Like, they just don't want to offend you. They just want to, like, you know, keep things going. Oh, great job at that. That was really awesome. You're great at that. And then you start doing something else, and they go, great job at that. You, like, you realize, like, don't take your input and your definition of who you are just from what other people see you do. Martin Luther says that vocation is a mask of God. And then Veith elaborates this on the saying, God hides himself in the workplace, the family, the church, and the seemingly secular society. To speak of God being hidden is a way of describing his presence, as when a child hiding in a room is there, just not seen. To realize that the mundane activities that take up most of our lives, going to work, taking the kids to soccer practice, picking up a few things at the store, going to church, are hiding places for God is a revelation in and of itself because it brings him down to earth and makes us see how close he really is to us and transfigures everyday life. Transfigures everyday life. That hit me. That hit me. That made me think about Pentecost in Acts, where the Spirit comes and anoints the apostles, and their very souls are transfigured in power because they have accepted God's grace and mercy, and God has called them and dwells in their bodies among them together as a society. And everyday life pops, and it becomes a field white for harvest, and every face becomes a face of Jesus. In Matthew 25, Jesus says to this point, the hidden face of God, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. It requires a great imagination for us to understand and live out our vocation in the way that God designed us to do it. But it requires that we would accept that we are already justified simply in faith. Now, if, if you are a person who's saying, okay, John, I get that I, I have a calling now, but I have no clue what it is. No clue. One, one of the violations of our callings is that it is actually a sin to pursue what you are not. Sorry, let me be very careful about this when I say what a sin is. Sorry. <clears throat> when we don't know what our vocations are, there is a spiritual dimension to work, involvement, and family 
They are plagued by a lack of purpose, confused as to what they should do and how they should live and who they are. So I'm not calling that a sin. I am saying that when we are confused on our vocation, there is a turmoil that rises up in us. And I think it would behoove us when we get questions about what am I here for? What am I doing? Is this job really for me? That we have some elements to discern in our calling. The first is an inward. We ask the question society's generally taught us to ask, which is our abilities. What are my giftings? What are my proven skills? Callings can be confirmed and can consist of these particular gifts that God has given us. But the second two are outward. One is your inward gifting and self and its affinity for things out in the world. This is where the world generally talks about your passions. Do what you're passionate about. Do what you love. Do what you desire. But there's also a part of that that requires maturity and character. Sometimes the things that we have an affinity for actually don't feel good, but we know they are good. And I think Jesus is talking about that a lot here with his disciples. He's saying what feels good for you is to be on the inner ring. But with character, as somebody who follows me on the way, with maturity, you will see that what you actually want isn't the inner ring. What you actually want is the way of Jesus, which is to love and serve others. So it's not simply a, a, a sort of infantile or adolescent passion of saying, this just feels good all the time for me to do this, and I love to do it. It is a sense that it has deep worth in the way of Jesus. It, has care, it is a part of the character of Jesus. And the last piece is opportunity. And these are unmet needs that exist out in the world, or sharers or supportive community who gets the need with you. They point and they say, this is a space that needs somebody like you. And what I've found with callings myself, because this is a world that I have lived through, is that often one of the three feels not quite right, is missing. And sometimes in life you have to endure and go, okay, God, I need to pray because two of them feel really good and one doesn't. Do you want me to do this? What is it about this third one that hasn't locked in? Maybe I'm really skilled and I like it, but there's no opportunities. Do you want me to keep pursuing or no? No job openings, no offers. People don't seem to get that I both think this is really good and have the ability to it. What do you want me to do here? Or we'll, we'll have, t t you know, rarely does this happen, but sometimes people will, you will want to do something and people will have an opening for it and they'll welcome you right in and you're not able to do it. Could be desperation out of the people with a need. They really need somebody to fill that spot. It could be your desire to people please. And then here you are without the abilities to do the calling. There are many different ways this constellation can work. And I think what you, what, when we discern our calling, what we have to do is bring those things before God and say, do I have them all straight? Are, are these abilities of mine? Can I bring good counsel around that? Do, do I, uh, this is where I had an issue. Do I want to do this? Or like, is, how do you explain this? Doing this doesn't feel good but do I actually have an affinity to do this? People don't love me when I do this, but actually I feel a deep need to do this. Should I do it? Right? We got to get, we got to get our, what does it actually mean down? And there are lots of books you can read about this. One that was useful for me was called Let Your Life Speak by Parker Palmer. It's a great short book about discerning vocation. 
Because so many times we think if it feels good and I'm good at it, then I should do it without thinking about what it actually does in the world. Or we think if it feels bad and it's not going to get me where I need to go in life, then I shouldn't do it. Even though God is calling you maybe into that, that tough spot like he's calling the disciples in. And he's thinning people and he's saying like, I'm looking for the people with real maturity. I think of callings a little bit like um, a vehicle in life. I think a lot of times when we think about this inner ring, like Lewis puts it, we think about one vehicle being better than the other. So for instance, uh, we're going somewhere and we've got somebody's in a car, somebody's on foot, somebody's on a bike, or somebody's on a horse. We got different vehicles that people are on. Those are their vocations, okay? The people in the car are whizzing by 100 miles an hour and they're gonna get to the other spot faster. If the goal was to get to the other spot, they would be the best option, wouldn't they? But the people walking get to experience the beauty and the details. They can stop and bend down and look around. They can get to know things. They can spend time. They can stop and stay somewhere because they're not so bent on getting in one direction. The people on a horse have a different vantage point. They, every vocation gives us a different look at life. And it is necessary in this doctrine of vocation that all of the unique qualities and all the unique pathways be done for the purposes of Jesus. And in that way, we begin to live into the new earth that we will someday live in permanently and circumstantially, meaning that it will actually be around us. And my vision of that new earth is that we will continue to operate as a Jesus society in perfect union with him, doing tasks with our giftings in vocation for love and service of the other. I'll flesh that out more when we talk about a new imagination for heaven. But if we start to think about this vehicle metaphor and we start to realize that these different vehicles are not better or worse than each other, they are just different modes of traveling through life with different functions, purposes, and goals, I think we can start to see some of what is meant by a vocation. These blessings also do not necessarily indicate favor in your action or inaction. This is one other way we sin often in our vocations. So we say, well, um, when I did this, everything went really well for me. So God must want me to do this. And when I didn't do this, you know, or when I did this other thing, it went terrible. That means God definitely doesn't want me there. You know? What, what about when Matthew 5, when Jesus says, I bring rain to both the just and the unjust farmers? What, what, about, what about Jesus here saying, it's not for me to give your position. Some will be higher, some will be lower. That totally reframes our sense of what is God's destiny for us in our vocation. And it helps us not to judge our neighbor, to judge their vocations and to say, well, you know, just not really working out for you. I don't think God's calling you to do that. Now, that, that may be, but that is not the sole metric we should be using for that. Does that make sense? It may be that they need to get into a place where they can provide better for their family, and it may be that they need to shift things, but it also may not. It may need be that you need to give and donate for them to help support their existence. It may be that they need to could call out and get donors around them to support whatever enterprise they're on. It may mean that they need to think creatively, and it is so many different ways in which we can think about our vocations. 
but they hinge on this fact that we are in alignment already. That God is at work in us now. He's available. And that when we begin to work in our vocation, we can rest from our working knowing that he is still at work. That's important too. Vieth talks about the spiritual kingdom, we rest in Christ, and the earthly kingdom, we serve our neighbors. So I think we're going to sing a song after this, if I remember the lyrics right, where we talk about, uh, actually, it's a, that's a different song, it's in the fields of the Lord. But when, we talk, when he talks about your work as rest, I think that's what God means in the calling of vocation. And I think Thomas Mitchell Farmer on his Essays in Life says this really well. He says, on one of the best secrets of a happy life is the art of extracting comfort and sweetness from every existence, every circumstance. People are always looking for happiness at some future time and in some new thing or some new set of circumstances in possessions of which they someday expect to find themselves. But the fact is, if happiness is not found now where we are, and as we are, there's little chance of it ever being found. There's a great deal more happiness around us day by day than we have the sense or power to seek and find. And if we are to cultivate the art of living, we should cultivate the art of extracting sweetness and comfort out of everything. As the bee goes from the flower to flower in search of honey. Let's pray. God, we thank you that through Jesus we can rest in this perpetual search for worthiness. I pray that for each of us that the Spirit would guide us in how that needs to look for our life, what areas there are that we are, we are just abdicating that, where we are, we are throwing that out, we're not accepting it, where we're holding on to the desire to work more, to achieve and be known. God, let us know areas where we are actually actively sinning, thinking that we're serving you, thinking that we're serving your vocation. But to do it, we're sinning, and then you say that's not the way. Help us to understand that we can in no way sin and more perfectly know your vocation, even if it means challenging and changing things about our lifestyle, enterprises that we're working on that are perpetuating destruction. God, give us the strength to pursue you more fully. In Jesus' name, amen.